0: Hey podcast listeners, I just wanted to give you a heads up that I'm changing the format of this podcast. In the past, I've uploaded talks from our meetings at Rocio Christi Colorado State, but I've decided that most people would rather have three 10-minute segments on various topics. With that in mind, if you still like the old format and content, it will be available on a podcast called Rossio Christi Colorado State, so make sure to subscribe to that if you want to keep the content in the future. Thanks a lot. the whole objection of Christianity has to be bigger than that, has to be greater than that. And when it comes down to then Christianity itself, it becomes really unique when we look at all these other religions. So when we look at the founders of every other religion in history, we look at Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Jesus, Confucius, Zoroaster, Moses, Charles Taze Russell, who started Jehovah Witnesses, Um, the Bob who started the Baha'i faith, which is basically this belief that like each of these pretty much people were prophets of God, and they were kind of this succession of prophets. Um, And so they kind of just say, all the prophets from every religion ever were just the next prophet in the true religion, which is Baha'i. So all of these different leaders, when you look at them, what's interesting is there's only one, that ever makes the claim that he himself is God. So You can look at Hinduism and you can say Hinduism has Krishna, who is God, but the person who founded Hinduism, we don't really have a person who founded Hinduism, so to speak. Um, The only person that ever started a faith that also claimed to be God is Jesus, and that makes him completely unique and Christianity unique in that sense. Who cares and why does it matter? When we're talking about the resurrection, this starts to get to some of the things that end up, again, making Christianity a little bit unique. No other story, no other religion makes the claim that Christ makes. So when you're looking at your notes, I think that'll be your first blank on there. No other religion, no other story makes the claim that Christ makes saying that he is God. And we see that within Scripture itself um, when we look at Matthew 12:39 through 40, it says, he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. So even Christ himself is pointing at it and saying, I am God, and the reason you know that I am God, because they're asking for a sign. The Pharisees come to him and they say, give us a sign, prove to us that you are who you claim you are. But when we look at Jesus, his reply to that is, I'm not going to give you a sign except... That I'm going to rise from the dead. So the whole thing ends up hinging on that one claim. So in fact, no other religion stands on the existence of one man, takes that even one step further. We saw that Jesus is the only one who claims to be God, but when we look at these other religions, if I were to take Muhammad out of Islam, if I was to take Buddha out of Buddhism, if I was to take all of the different leaders, all of the different founders out of their religions, even Joseph Smith, even Charles Taze Russell, you take those leaders out of the religion, the religion still stands completely. It can still work. It can still function completely without those leaders existing at all. But if Christianity, if Jesus never existed, the whole thing falls apart. It doesn't work at all. It falls apart like a house of cards. So going even a step further, no other religion, no other, no other story stands or purely based upon whether a single event actually happens. So we know if I take Christ out of Christianity, then it doesn't stand. But if I even have Jesus, but he just didn't rise from the dead, you still don't have Christianity. You have to have him rise from the dead. Otherwise, the whole thing makes absolutely no sense. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15. And if you're wanting to just kind of think of the key passage when we're talking about the resurrection, 1 Corinthians is it. We really don't almost need to go to anywhere else. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in depth when we looked at some other parts of that chapter. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19, it says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has been raised. Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, We are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he was raised from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, none are raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has been raised, not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ and there is no resurrection of the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul himself is looking at Christianity and saying it all rides on this. If Christianity exists, if it's true at all, Christ has to be raised. And if Christ isn't raised, then the whole thing falls apart and we're the people most to be pitied. So let's see if my... I got some uh, videos. Have any of you guys seen Case for Christ? So there's a great movie that came out last year. I am usually not a fan of Christian movies. I think usually poor acting, bad plot, bad cinematography, the whole shebang. This is one movie that was really well done, well produced, great acting, great plot. Um, And it's basically about a guy, his name's Lee Strobel. And Lee Strobel, you've probably heard of. There's a book called Case for Christ. And so the movie itself is called *Case for Christ*, and he's basically an investigative journalist, and he looks up a lot of crimes and then figures out what actually happened. And is actually, for a lot of cases, as he was going in his career, was able to figure out the truth behind different things that some of the investigators and the cops didn't figure out. His wife becomes a Christian, and he decides I want to disprove Christianity because I don't want my wife to still believe that Christianity is true. And so he decides he's going to go and he's going to investigate it. And after he's kind of reached this point of kind of being unsure whether or not it's legit and he's kind of questioning, there's this scene that he has, and this is the guy who first challenges him. This is one of his buddies in his office who is basically the one that said, if you want to disprove Christianity, you just need to disprove the resurrection. That's all you got to do. And so we could just kind of pick it up from there. We could probably even just leave the lights like that.
1: What are you doing here? I thought you were banished. <laughs> hey, what's the matter? You people and your God—you just, you know, you talk in circles. You offer, you offer just enough evidence, but never enough to be conclusive. And you fill in all the gaps. No, well, yeah, you just got to have faith. Leave it off.
2: It's a bunch of nonsense. You're really irritating.
1: You know what? <laughs> don't stop with me, Kenny. You don't waste a lick of time bragging to all of us how great a reporter you are. So why can't you put up or shut up on this story? One of my heroes was C.S. Lewis, a man who began a skeptic. The individual, and you know what he said? He said, Christianity is false, but it's true.
3: There's nothing more important in the, the So, you want your wife back? Well, hey, guess what? People in hell want ice water. Not everybody gets everything they want. Stop <laughs> <laughs> like oh, blaming
1: me. And the church. the evidence, follow the facts,
0: and write the story, win or lose. I wish they didn't cut that quite, quite as early as they do, because red right as he's walking out, he's like, good night.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <clears throat> um, so how are we approaching this? In a lot of ways, I want to kind of take... In some ways, what his friend did, we're challenging people to say, all right, you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Give give me your evidence. You need to try to prove it yourself. But what we're going to end up doing is what we're going to do is just kind of a very modest goal. So basically what I'm going to tell people if I sit down at this table as we're kind of doing these dialogues on campus is I'm just going to try to convince them that the most non-biased, and reasonable explanation for the historical facts is that Jesus rose from the dead. So I'm not trying to completely prove to them. I'm not trying to get them to walk away believing 100% that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm just trying to get them to at least see, or at least anybody that maybe hears our conversation, to see that of the data that we've examined, the most non-biased and reasonable explanation of that data is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. That's all I'm trying to do. So when I've even had talks with people, so I've even been just dialoguing with some people online, even today. And one of them was just saying like, well, you have no proof. And I gave him a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about. And time after time, he's like, you haven't shown me any proof. Well, like if you choose to put your head in the sand, like an ostrich, you're welcome to believe whatever you want. But I'm not trying to to convince you 100%, I'm just trying to show you that this is the most reasonable explanation. You can always dismiss data if you want. That's always an option. But that's not the most reasonable, and that's not the most non-biased approach. So looking at non-biased, we realize that some people might just look at it and say, miracles don't happen. I know that God doesn't exist, and miracles don't happen, so no matter how much evidence and how much proof you give me, I know that miracles don't happen, so you can't prove to me at all. You can take that approach, but that's not being unbiased in your approach of the facts. If the facts seems to be pointing that way, that's what you need to go to, even if your a priority, your prior assumptions coming into it, are saying that miracles don't happen. If there's good evidence to think that miracles do, and the resurrection, of course, would be a miracle, then you need to go with that. Some people might say, we've never seen somebody rise from the dead again. Well, we have also never seen... The Scots beat the English in the battle, uh, in different battles. Like that, only some events only happen once. That doesn't mean that you can say, well, it's never happened before, so it couldn't have happened. You have to look at the data. <clears throat> so the hope in that is I'm hoping them to get them to admit that their refusal to believe in the resurrection is based in their bias. When I'm looking then at reasonable, just because there are other explanations do not mean that they are the most reasonable. So somebody might look at it and say, hey, some, somebody's going around, you know, this last um, couple of weeks we had UMBC beat Virginia in the Sweet 16. That's never happened before. A 16 seed beat a number one seed. I could look at that and say there has to be a better explanation. There's no way that that ever happens. But then if I present to somebody, well, here's Fox News, and that's what they're reporting, and CBS News, and that's what they're reporting, and NBC News, and that's what they're reporting, and they still say, well, maybe there's another explanation. I could say, well, maybe what actually happened is Fox News wrote it down wrong, and then everybody else just copied the score that Fox News wrote down, and so everybody got it wrong, and really the scores are flip-flopped, and Virginia won by that amount, not lost by that amount, and that's really what happened that's an explanation, but it's not the most reasonable explanation that all of these different news sources copied from each other, you wanna get the story out first. That's not how it works. They're not gonna copy from each other and they're gonna fact check, so it's not a reasonable answer. Um, again, in that, now I'm trying to get them to admit that their refusal to believe in the resurrection is unreasonable. So it'd be great if I can go through what we're gonna talk about today Ultimately, yeah, my goal, I would hope that they can walk away and they, they can say, yeah, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. But if I can just get them to, to see, and they probably won't admit to me, because that's just how we are as human beings, I'm not going to go, yeah, you're right, I'm going to have to think about that. I might be thinking it in my head, but I'm not going to say it to you. So in their heads, I'm just trying to get them to admit one of these two things. That's my goal. So how do I do that? Where do we start? What I'm basically going to do is I'm going to say there's two historical facts that based on these facts, the best explanation of that, the most reasonable and non-biased explanation of those facts is that Jesus rose from the dead. So what we're doing is we're basically taking a logical process to kind of go through this. And so here's an example of one way that you can kind of do a logical argument saying bachelors are single men, Bob's a bachelor, therefore Bob's a single man. If I'm going to try to disprove this proof, I have three options. I can show that somehow this isn't true, that bachelors aren't single men, that Bob isn't a bachelor, or I can say that somehow these don't force this conclusion. That's the only way that I can disprove this. Now, this is a sound and valid argument. There's no way to disprove it because the premises are true, and it follows from the premises that the conclusion follows from that. But what we're gonna do is kind of put ours in the same mode, but again, our goal isn't to get them to fully admit it. It's just trying to get them to see that the most reasonable explanation is that he rose from the dead. So our first fact is that Jesus died of crucifixion. Our second fact is Jesus' followers believed that he appeared to them after he died And therefore, the most reasonable and non-biased explanation is that Jesus rose from the dead. That's our argument. So after that, I'm going to present that to them. And I'm basically going to say, all right, based on this, which approach do you want to take to argue against this? What are you going to say are the reasons why this this proof doesn't work for the data that we're talking about? And so maybe they're going to attack the facts. Or maybe they're gonna say that that doesn't bring the conclusion. And there's some other explanation outside of that. So just to kind of keep things flowing, what we're just gonna assume is that they're gonna argue against the facts. They're gonna say that those aren't true. So from there, what we're looking at is, all right, how do I evaluate whether data's legitimate or not? When I was talking with a guy today, basically he got to a point and he was just like, well, here's, I gave him, here's the reference from the Jewish Talmud. He's a reference from Josephus. Here's a reference from Tacitus, from Lucian, all saying that Jesus died. And he's like, those aren't legit. I'm like, okay, give me a reason why. And then he wouldn't give me a reason why. And I was like, well, if I apply the same reasons, because some he gave a little bit to say like, well, Josephus wrote 60 years after the events. I'm like, okay, can you give me sources for Caesar, any Caesar, that's closer than that? There's not. The best sources that we have are either the guys that are giving us the same data. We're getting it from Lucian. We're getting it from Tacitus or Josephus about Caesar. So they're just as close to the data or they're worse. So if he's dismissing it, He needs to use that same approach with everything else. And in the end, with this talk with this guy, he ended up basically being like, yeah, I just don't believe Caesars existed either then. What? You're really going to take that approach? Because then at that point, I'm going to say, well, now you're a joke to every historian ever. If you're really going to say, like, I even got him to go as far as to just say, yeah, I don't believe anybody ever existed in history. What? Like, (laughs) That doesn't work and that's where now we see he's being unreasonable in that and then he kept on trying to bring out these other arguments to say like, well, I can't trust this source. And I'm like, well, if I apply that to your other sources for Caesar, you still have the same problem. So what's our criteria for authenticity? First of all, we look at early reports and these are just basic premises that when you're doing historical research, these are the type of things that you're just gonna test to see is it, Is it a good, reliable source? So the closer it is to the events, the more reliable it's gonna be. That just makes sense. If I decided to tell you, I'm writing a first-person narrative of the Civil War, you'd probably be a little skeptical, right? Because I didn't exist then. But if I wrote a first-person narrative of World War II, maybe not quite as much, because maybe I talked with my grandfathers who were there, and I'm writing kind of a personal narrative of what they wrote. So despite the fact that I'm writing 70 years after the events, I could still be writing from first-person narrative, and that could be still pretty reliable. So early reports, eyewitness reports, so especially if it's writing, this is, not only is it me, somebody writing down from what their grandfather said, it's, no, this is actually the guy that saw it himself. That's gonna be a lot more reliable. Multiple independent attestations. So the more sources that you have confirming the same thing, the more reliable it's going to get. So sometimes people forget when we're looking at the Bible, we're not looking at one person's writing. We're looking at Paul. We're looking at Peter. We're looking at John, Mark, Luke. We're looking at all of these different sources. And I'm not even really going to use the Bible a ton for my data. So that's another thing that ends up being good. Principle of embarrassment. So this is especially important to think about when we're looking at scriptures is you're not going to write something down that either disagrees with what you're trying to promote or makes you look bad. So when we see in the Gospels that Peter's called Satan by Jesus, if Peter's making this up, is he going to write down, oh yeah, and that's the part that God called me the devil? Nope. You want to make yourself look good. So the fact that they include these parts that makes them look bad, or even there's also the fact that the women find the tomb first. They find that empty. The reason why that's significant is a woman's, their witness didn't mean nearly as much in a court of law. And so you wouldn't write down that they were the first ones to witness if I want to try to convince somebody. It'd be like saying, well, the crazy guy over there in the corner that we all know is a little gone, he saw it. Ask him. We wouldn't take that as reliable. In the same way, people in that culture didn't look at a women's, woman's testimony as reliable. So if they're writing that down and saying, that's, just, that's who found it, then that's probably just how it went down. So those principles of embarrassment. Enemy attestation. So when we see somebody who's against the message of what we're trying to promote, if I can use sources that are really don't want to promote the idea that Jesus rose from the dead to prove that Jesus rose from the dead, that's pretty good data because you don't write down things that are going to make someone else's point that you're going against true. Um, So coherence without coercion. So that's an important thing to realize as well. So when we look at the gospel, sometimes people look at it and say like, well, there's discrepancies. They disagree here and here. Who is exactly the right person that found the tomb first, different disagreements within the Gospels. You know, it's probably it's probably all messed up. It's probably all made up. Well, if you're a cop, there's actually one apologist named Jay Warner Wallace, who's the next cold case detective. He's probably been on Dateline more than any other cold case detective in history and solved maybe more cold cases than anybody else. Now he's a Christian because he can examine this as a cold case detective would, and said, this makes sense, because he looks at it and says, there's inconsistencies within the stories, but they're not irreconcilable. So I can reconcile how all of these work together. If they all agreed on every single little detail, that means they got together to figure out how they can make the story as believable as possible. So the fact that there is a little bit of difference, but it's reconcilable, shows that it's very liable." Aramaic substrata is kind of the last part, and that's just realizing that that's probably the language that they used in that time period, and so the fact that it has that laid within it just proves once again that that's probably pretty reliable in that. So those are the principles that we're kind of using to validate the sources that we're looking at. So what are our sources? So most people would, when we start bringing this up, they're gonna be like, well, don't quote the Bible because I don't believe in the Bible, and that in some ways is fair we're not going to look at the Bible that much. So the first source we're going to look at is a guy named Josephus. And Josephus is a Jewish and Roman historian. So this is one of those enemy attestation parts. So that you have someone who's Jewish, they don't want Jesus going around saying that he's the Messiah and he's writing for the Romans, so they don't want someone going around saying he's the king of the Jews because that's going to start a revolt. If he's confirming some of the things about Christ, that's good reason to think that we can follow what he's saying. When we look at Tacitus, he's a Roman senator and historian. So again, the Roman part, that makes him an enemy. Lucian, he's a satirist and rhetorician, also Roman. Merabar Serapion, he's a Roman Stoic philosopher. <clears throat> the Jewish Talmud. So especially, the Jewish Talmud is basically the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. So you're not going to expect that giving you data to tell that Jesus rose from the dead. But that is actually one of the sources that we can use. Early church fathers. So people might try to argue, well, this is biased because they already believe in Christianity. But this, again, these are multiple sources and that still just backs up your case more. So these are all the sources we have for that. These are all the early church fathers and they're writing 2nd century, 1st century, 3rd century, at the latest. So they're still very early sources. When actually we look at Caesar's Gaelic Wars, for instance, which is how we get a lot of our stories about Caesar, those are usually three centuries after the events that it's recording. These are not our best sources, and they're three centuries at worst. Our best sources for other historical, historical people are three centuries at best. Ours, at worst, are three centuries. <clears throat> Scripture itself, of course, then you have Paul, you have Matthew, Mark, um, and Luke. So those are all looked at as synoptic gospels because they repeat a lot of the same things. Some people would actually argue that um, those synoptic gospels are basically copying from each other. People might argue that um, Mark was written first and then Matthew and Luke copied from that. Some people would argue that Matthew's written first and that Mark and Luke copy that. Either way, they're saying that it's one source. And so we're even just going to say, let's even agree with that. Even though there's data that each of those books have that the other ones don't. But a lot of their data does repeat. John is another source. And then we have James and some of these other ones that obviously like promote what the scriptures say about Jesus rising from the dead, but it's not quite as plain in that. So here's one, again, enemy attestation. This guy's name is Bart Ehrman. He is receiving the award for the Freedom From Religion Foundation with the king that has no clothes, which is the trophy right there. He's basically getting an award from this association because they're fighting against religion, and they think he's written a lot of good things to prove Christianity false. (laughs) And so they're like, hey, thanks for doing that. Here's an award. And in the Q&A that he's doing afterwards, one of the people in the crowd asked him, I don't think there's any good data to believe that Jesus ever existed. So this is one of the biggest sources when we talk even with Muslims and Mormons. They'll reference him to talk about the ways that we think Scripture has been changed over the centuries, which is a whole other topic. But they'll resource him for that. Atheists will resource him for that. But when question whether or not Jesus existed... This is what he has to say. I do not see evidence in archaeology or history for historical Jesus. Yeah,
2: well, I do. I mean, uh, that's why I wrote the book. But, I mean, okay, yeah. I mean, I have a whole book on it. <laughs> I mean, uh, so there is a lot of evidence. I mean, there, there is so much evidence that it is, it is not. I mean, I know in the, in the crowds you all run around with, it's commonly thought that Jesus did not exist. Let me tell you. Once you get outside of your conclave, there's nobody who, I mean, this is not even an issue for scholars of antiquity. It is not an issue for scholars of antiquity. There is no scholar in any college or university in the Western world who teaches classics, ancient history, New Testament, early Christianity, any related field who doubts that Jesus existed. Now, that is not evidence That is not evidence. Just because everybody thinks so doesn't make it evidence. But if you want to know about the theory of evolution versus the the theory of creationism, and every scholar in every reputable institution in the world thinks that believes in evolution, it may not be evidence, but if you've got a different opinion, you better have a pretty good piece of evidence yourself. The reason for thinking Jesus exists is because he is abundantly attested in early sources. That's Waka. And I give the details in my book. Uh, Early and independent sources uh, indicate that certainly that Jesus existed. One author that we know about knew Jesus' brother. And knew Jesus' closest disciple, Peter. He's an eyewitness to both Jesus' closest disciple and his brother. I mean, I'm sorry, but uh, you know, again, I, res- I respect your disbelief, but I—I, I, you know, if you want to go where the evidence goes, I think that I think that atheists have done themselves a mis- uh, a disservice by jumping on the bandwagon of mythicism, because, frankly, it makes—it makes you look foolish to the outside world. If that's what you're going to believe, you just look foolish. Uh, you you are much better off going with historical evidence and arguing historically rather than coming up with the theory that Jesus did not
0: this. Sorry. So if that's, that's not good enough evidence, if that's so not funny. thorough enough for well, you. <laughs> so again, realizing, and here's even a little background with Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman actually went to Wheaton Bible School for his undergrad. He went to Moody Bible School for his graduate degree, and then he went to Princeton for his PhD. And he's now the head of religion at the University of Chapel Hill in North Carolina. He's a big deal. so, And despite that, he was raised Christian, believed he was a Christian, and then left the faith, not because of any of the stuff we're talking about today, but because he doesn't believe that there can be a good God and all the bad things that happen in the world. So he's not exactly on our team, But when it comes to this, he is. So, again, even just a couple other things that he says. He says, skeptics who are not trained might doubt that Jesus died on the cross, but to any trained scholar it is well as tested as any historical fact. So, this is the type of things he's saying. Our approach, when we're kind of getting into this, is we're doing a minimal facts approach. And it's basically, here are the facts that we know that Here are the bricks that kind of make up the facts that we're trying to prove, the two facts that we're trying to prove. First of all, Jesus died of crucifixion. That's just a fact in itself. Second of all, Jesus' followers believed he appeared to them after his death. That's significant because you have to now explain why they're going around saying that Jesus rose from the dead. That doesn't mean these sources that we're looking at we're not looking at scripture particularly with this, although that's one of them, but we can get it from other things as well, are showing that the disciples believed he rose from the dead and you have to account for that fact. If you're going to give a theory, you have to explain that away somehow or another. Same goes for Saul or Paul of Tarsus. He believed Jesus appeared to him after Jesus' death. And we also know that Paul wasn't always a follower we know that James, Jesus' brother, who also didn't believe Jesus was Messiah before the resurrection, also doubted. He later believed that Jesus appeared to him and became one of the church leaders as well. So in some ways, that ends up being this flip over to our side. He's not with us, then he's with us, Both for, the, for both of those guys. And then kind of a last bonus fact that I'm just throwing in there for funsies is that the tomb itself was empty. So... I don't honestly think we need that one very much to prove our point, but it's another one that's pretty well attested by scholars. So when we look at all these different ones, when we look at just the numbers, about 99% of scholars are gonna agree that Jesus died of crucifixion. There's only a very, very, very few scholars. You can hear how Bart Ehrman said, there's no scholar who teaches from anything that has to do with this time period, with this era, this place in Western world, who agrees that Jesus didn't exist. And that pretty much goes the same across the board for that he died of crucifixion as well. Jesus' followers believe that he appeared to them after his death. About 95% of scholars are going to agree to that. You have about 5% that are disagreeing, so you still have a huge majority. The same goes for Paul, because most scholars are pretty much just including him right with that. With James, we don't have as many people that just commentate on it. About 90% of scholars who do say that, yes, James did believe, but most of them, is just not as important a point. The disciples and Paul become a lot more important, so they don't comment on that. For the tomb, we have about 70% of scholars that agree that the tomb was empty. So still quite a majority, but it's not quite as much of a landslide with that, which is part of the reason that I'm not really including that fully in our argument. Make sense so far? Any questions? So again, the main points we're looking at is kind of those first three. Those are the best ones to really focus in on. So brick number one, Jesus died of crucifixion. What are our sources for that? These are our sources, all seven of these, Josephus, Tacitus, Lucian, Marabar Serapion, Jewish Talmud, John, and the Synoptic Gospels. All of those attest to that. And also I should be including um, really Paul by himself when we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, that in itself also supports that. And we also have early Christian creeds, which we'll kind of get around to more with some of these other ones. So Josephus, this is what Josephus says in the antiquities that he writes of the Jews. He says, at this time there was a wise wise man named Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and die seems to pretty well support that he died on the cross. Tacitus says, hence to suppress the rumor, he falsely charged with guilt and punished the Christians who were hated for enormities. What he's talking about here is Nero, when the fires happened, blamed the Christians for those fires. So falsely charged and punished the Christians who were hated. Christus, the founder of the name for Christians, was put to death by Pontius Pilate procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. So not only is he now attesting that Jesus was crucified and died, but he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. So that also gives even more support to our scriptures and what our scriptures say about that. Lucian. So Lucian, again, he's a satirist. So he's writing about these um, mythologies, and he's talking about that, and he kind of interrupts himself at one point. Um, He's talking about this guy being blamed for some stuff, and then he stops in the middle of that, and he says, they still worship him, the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult to the world, and he's referencing Christ there. Marabar Serepion, um, he says... What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished. God justly avenged these three wise men. And the three wise men he's talking about is Jesus as the wise king of the Jews, Socrates, and I forget the other guy. So he's kind of making a commentary of just how there's been some different leaders through the centuries that ended up being killed by their own followers and how that didn't really help these people. And he's including Jesus among that. The Jewish Talmud. So again, this is the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. The last place in the world you would really expect anybody to give support that Jesus rose from the dead. And it says, on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu, the Hebrew name for Jesus, was hanged. For 40 days before the execution had took place, he had cried, he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. So it's not saying he hung on the cross for 40 days; it's saying 40 days early he practiced sorcery, which is why they hung him on the cross. So what do the skeptics say? Already we kind of looked at a little bit of that. So skeptics, Bart Ehrman says skeptics who are not trained might doubt that Jesus died on the cross, but any trained scholar it is well attested as any historical fact. He says, no reputable scholar denies that Jesus died on the cross. John Dominic Crossan, who's part of the Jesus Seminar, which is basically a bunch of really liberal scholars getting together and saying, well, I think this thing was in the Bible and this thing wasn't in the Bible. This was in the Bible and this wasn't in the Bible. This was originally written and this wasn't, very arbitrarily. They don't really have a lot of backup for the reasons what the passages that they say are in or out. And a lot of it just basically comes to, this is a miracle, we don't trust it. This isn't a miracle, we trust that. So it's not really scholarly, but even John Dominic Crossan, who's in charge of that, says the death of Jesus is well attested as any historical fact of the ancient world. Another guy, Marcus Borg, who's the guy that I read when I was here at CSU studying philosophy when we talked about Christianity. We read his book and he basically says, well, we don't really mean that Jesus died literally, We I mean, you know, allegorically he died, and it sounds good that he died, and that sort of thing. And the miracles didn't literally happen. It was like a good story. So this is the approach that Marcus Borg is taking, but he also says Jesus died for being a political rebel. So all of these guys, again, not, our, not really on our team, but when it comes to this fact, they pretty well agree with it. So what about the disciples believing that he rose from the dead? These are the sources that we have for that. Josephus, Lucian, Pliny the Younger, who's one of the early church leaders. We have the writings of Paul. We have oral traditions from creeds and sermon summaries. We have the written traditions through the Gospels, the apostolic fathers like Clement and Polycarp. And with that comes in the fact that these people were willing to die from that. And then we have all of these other sources that show that these people were willing to die for that fact. So, I know a bunch of you guys are probably writing furiously to get everything down. I will put all this on my blog, which is beardeddisciple.com. So, if you guys want to have the PowerPoint, I'll probably have it up there tonight or tomorrow. Uh, So, Josephus. Again, we looked at this already. Um, It says that they reported, they appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. So already they're seeing him three days after the crucifixion. One thing to note, this might be something for you to kind of keep in mind when you're dialoguing with people. Some people will say, well, Josephus, this is an interpolation. There's actually different manuscripts that we look at with Josephus, and one of the ones that we look at ends up being pretty well shown to probably have been fiddled with by some later Christians. Well-intentioned Christians, but they were like, well, let's change this. At the time, there was a wise man called Jesus, if you could call him a wise man, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. He was the Christ. Jewish person's probably not going to write that, right? So that's good reason to say, like, that's probably not good. But when we look at other manuscripts from other languages, we see something like this that scholars are going to look at, and they're going to say this is legit. So this isn't, isn't looking at something like this, and people aren't saying, well, that's biased, this is clearly fiddled with these sort of manuscripts that we have, those are pretty reliable. Um, Pliny the Younger, um, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, and when they sang an alternative verse of the hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound them by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsely falsify their word, nor deny a trust when it should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. Early creed. So now we're going to jump back to 1 Corinthians. So one of the things that's fascinating when we look at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is viewed as one of the earliest works of the New Testament. It was probably written during Paul's third missionary journey, which is pretty still early compared to all the other scriptures. Most scholars, even liberal scholars, are probably going to date 1 Corinthians to be 10 years after the fact. So pretty close already. But when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, we see... Paul already kind of prefaces this a little bit. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you a gospel which I preached unto you, which also you had received, and wherein ye stand, by which you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. So that's kind of his preface. I gave to you what I also received, and it's almost like he then goes into a quote here. And part of the reason we know this is all of a sudden, it's kind of got just this normal flow as any writing would. But once it gets to that point, it kind of hits this rhythm, like any poetry does. Da 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 da. And what that tells us is this is probably not what Paul originally wrote. This is what he received from Peter and from James beforehand, and it's an early Christian creed. So this was getting passed on before. Paul came about. Before Paul writes it down, this is orally how the Christians are passing along. This is what we believe as Christians. And what what then they say there is, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen of Cephas, Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present day. Some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then the apostles. So this is an early Christian creed. It's predating 1 Corinthians. So most scholars are even going to say that this creed, even Bart Ehrman, these early creeds date to one to two years after the cross. So two years after. When we're looking at most uh, sources for antiquity, when we look at Caesar's Gaelic Wars, we're looking at 300 years after. People say that's pretty reliable. This is two years after. That's pretty reasonable. It's pretty reliable. And that's what Bart Ehrman says. When we look at other scholars, some of them would even say that this is months afterwards, maybe 90 days after the cross, and they're starting to say this creed to get the word out. So this is as early as we get. There's no other source in all of really history, period, from that time period that's that close to the events that it's talking about than this creed. <clears throat> we also have Acts sermon accounts that kind of do the same sort of thing where there's some. There's some rhythm to it. Um, So Acts 1 through 5 has some different things. In Acts 10, when Peter's talking with Cornelius, that seems to be also some sort of sermon that was probably just kind of repeated around. So all of these probably predate Acts itself. So again, giving more credence to the early dates of it, which makes it more reliable. So the next brick is that Paul believed that he saw Jesus. So, what do we have for that? Looking at his conversion, we have Paul himself talking about it, and we have Luke and Acts talking about it. Tucker talking about his suffering and martyrdom. We have Paul, Luke and Acts, Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Tertullian, Dionysius of Corinth, and Origen. <clears throat> so, from the creeds and Luke, we have this. And last of all, he was seen by me also. So, we have that creed, and then it continues on, and Paul kind of just adds into it. So, you know this creed, you've heard this. He also appeared to me as some born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am to to be called an apostle, and because I am persecuted for the church of God. And then, of course, Acts itself, talking about when Jesus appeared to him on the road to, to Damascus. Clement of Rome Also references this, owing to envy Paul also obtained the reward of patient endurance after being seven times thrown into captivity, compelled to flee in stone. After preaching both in the East and the West, he gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and come to extreme limit of the West and suffered martyrdom under the prefects. Thus he was removed from the world and went to the holy place, having proved himself a striking example of patience. So this is Clement's first letter to the Corinthians. It's not 1 Corinthians. It's just his letter to the Corinthians. Brick number four. So James believed that he saw Jesus. So again, we have a conversion appearing here. Before he didn't believe, early creeds report that Jesus appeared to him, and then he believed, and afterwards we see him talking with Paul in Acts. We know that he was martyred from Josephus, Hegesippus, or Jerome, and Clement of Alexandria record that. So just looking at the scriptures, we, saw, we see that for his own brothers did not believe him in John 7, 5, Jesus. Um, and then we know that James is the Lord's brother from Galatians, Galatians 1, 19. And then after that, he was seen of James, then all of the apostles. And again, that's part of that early creed that we know is true.
3: Was there anywhere other than the Bible that talked about that James didn't believe
0: that he was Jesus beforehand? From what I've seen, I don't think there's necessarily data that shows that he didn't believe before outside of our scriptures. So, so, yeah. That we found at this point. But it is something that, like, once again, this is, when it comes to this subject, it's one that the <clears throat> um, most of the scholars just don't comment, comment on James. So when we talk about James... Most scholars, about 10% of scholars, have even just talked about whether James believed or not. Those who have pretty much are unanimous to say, like, he didn't believe and now he does. Um, because there's really no reason to doubt that kind of goes with the principle of embarrassment in the sense that, like, you don't want the brother of God to not believe that he's God. That doesn't look good.
3: Right. I was literally
0: just going to chime in about the principle of embarrassment. Right. Yep. Oh. What do the sep- skeptics say about that? Um, Bart Ehrman says, I have no problem saying that the disciples had experiences as a fact of history. Um, Larry Hurtado is another scholar. He says that the teaching of the resurrection messages dates to immediately after the cross. So, again, like part of that, we can know that, like when Josephus writes, he says, three days, he literally says, after three days, they started to preach that Christ had risen from the dead. And that's, again, a non-Christian source talking about that. So brick number five, this was kind of our bonus one, talking about the tomb itself. So the different ways that we kind of know that is, first of all, the Jerusalem factor. Say Alan dies the other day, right? And three days ago, and Sean comes up to me, and he's like, I saw him. He's alive. He's here. What am I going to do? I was at the burial. I'm going to go check out the tomb, right? I'm going to go check it out, or I'm going to want to see Alan, right? So the Jerusalem factor is basically saying, we, we know where the tomb is. The fact that all of these people wouldn't know where the tomb is, the entire city wouldn't be able to kind of snuff that out by saying, like, actually, we, we went over there. Body's still there nothing's changed, kind of proves the fact that the tomb probably was empty. Um, The other part that kind of goes with that is the enemy attestation again is, first of all, they're silent on it, but also the fact that we see the Jews say, don't tell anybody that this happened. They bribe the Roman guards. So that also points to it. And then we talked a little bit earlier about the testimony of the women. If you're trying to prove that the tomb was empty, I'm not going to tell you that the women well. You can believe it because the women told you. That's not what I can go to. And what's interesting is in the earlier accounts, we have that the women attested to that. In the later accounts is when we don't see the women talked about. And the reason for that is at first they're like, we just gotta get the facts out there. And then later they're like, well, that's not convincing anybody. Let's put it out there and just get the the meat of it. What's actually going to convince people. So any questions just about that, about those five facts or anything that we've covered to this point? Okay. I'm curious, um, even meant to kind of even start with this, what are the reasons that you guys have heard that people dismiss that Jesus rose from the dead? Don't all jump at once.
3: So the one I usually run into is, um, while well, God doesn't exist. So even if Jesus if Jesus existed, he wasn't God. So right. They just deny the divinity of Christ by denying divinity. In
0: itself. And right. God. It's a whole different ball of worms, but yeah. Right. We know that people don't rise from the dead, so Jesus came out risen from the dead. Right. Yeah, that's another. So both of those end up being kind of these a priori assumptions. They're coming in and saying, like, this can't be true. doesn't matter how much data you really give me. Those things don't happen. We know that God doesn't exist, so that can't happen. What other? Uh, like, mhm. Yeah, so with some people, and there's different forms of that. Some people will say the disciples stole the body, other people will say somebody random stole the body and then the disciples showed up and they're like, where did it go? There's a few different theories with the body being stolen. Any other?
1: I've had people say,
3: like, well, I guess as Christians, they're not defending as much that, that he actually rose from the dead and, like people saw it. And so once that case for Christ came out, now I've got like atheists that are saying, well, nobody talked about that until case for Christ came out and they said well, 500 saw him afterwards. But like, they won't deny that Jesus lived and that he had died on the cross. They just deny that he rose from the dead, and that nobody really mentioned that until the movie came
0: out. Right.
3: And so I've had that before.
0: So almost just saying, well, it's new data, so we can't trust it, just because.
3: Well, and they don't trust the Bible, so they're saying, okay, I haven't heard it before, and all of a sudden now everybody's saying, well, this is in the Bible, and everybody's pointing to this very specific scripture, and so they're kind of looking at it as like.
0: How come all of a sudden now everybody points to that scripture? Which is an interesting thing to to point out. I think a lot of times when we're dialoguing with people is they're so unfamiliar with this data that they think we're trying to pull one on them. You know, they're like, well, what is that? What is that stuff? Like, how does that really prove anything? How can I really trust that? I've never heard of that before. Well, have you really researched this? Let's be honest here. Like, I saw another video that basically gives this whole minimal facts approach, and I saw a guy who commented on it, and the uh, thing that he kind of brings up in that is to say, like, well, I don't, I don't really know if I can trust these scholars, because the video brings out all the scholars that agree to these minimal facts, and he's like, well, I've never heard of any of them. Well, I'm like, well, you've never done any research on these guys. If you knew anything about any of this, you'd at least know who Bart Ehrman is but you haven't studied it. So you're not, you're not a scholar, you're not somebody that has authority in this to declare who's a reputable scholar and who's not. <clears throat> It'd be like somebody saying, well, I don't believe in Darwinism, and they've never heard of Charles Darwin or Richard Dawkins. If you haven't done any research, you don't really have that much clout to really talk on the subject. <clears throat> so here are kind of the different theories, and what we're gonna kind of do here is, um, depending on how much time we have, um, <clears throat> what we're going to kind of do is look at each of these and I want you to maybe break up kind of into groups. We got 30 minutes, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so break up into groups of like four or five and the swoon theory is this idea that basically like Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He survived the cross and then he appeared to all the disciples after that, and they believed, oh, he rose from dead because he never really died in the first place. So break up in groups of about five, and thinking about the data that we've just talked about, those five minimal facts, and even honing in on those first two facts that we believe that he died and that the disciples or his early followers believed he appeared to them, what would be the reason that that doesn't add up? So go for it. Break up in groups. All right. What were you guys' thoughts? Who had the best answer? Buck, did you have the best answer? (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Thoughts? What would you say? Somebody's saying that he just didn't die. What would be your reply? <laughs> I'm smarter than you, and I'm bigger I'm than you. I'm smarter than you. Yeah. Alan mentioned, we talked about a little bit, a couple of us mentioned, yeah. like, there
3: were professional killers who carried out the sentence.
0: What's your evidence of that, though? Uh...
3: What's the evidence? Like, that's how crucifixion worked. Like, every historical... <laughs> like, any any historical description of crucifixion says that, like, Roman soldiers
0: did it, like, including... What if I say it wasn't the Roman soldiers, it was Jewish people? That
3: wouldn't have happened. Jews Jews didn't...
0: Why do you think that? that?
3: Because Jews... <laughs> uh, what you <laughs> uh, Jews, uh, Jews wouldn't have crucified because cursed, in Deuteronomy it says curses are going eggs on a tree, so they wouldn't have crucified one of their own, if he was, if Jesus was a Jew, If they want
0: to prove that he's not Jesus the messiah that'd be the best way to do it wouldn't it
3: no because curse is the one who hangs on a tree you just don't do it they wouldn't have done it you've,
0: you've that's what your view it, is
3: and say okay fine it was the jews if he gets on that crucifix he's going to die regardless because the physics
0: they didn't do it very often they might not have done it right That's making some pretty big jumps. But there are scientific studies
2: on it. Sorry, what about the two other guys that died? They were crucified as well. I mean, 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 they died. I mean, so, and they were all crucified alongside.
0: (coughs) How do you know they died? (coughs) (coughs) The only source is we. (coughs) Excuse me. (laughs) <laughs> well, the only sources we have that talk about these other people being crucified are the Gospels. I don't trust the Gospels. Yeah, the other
3: sources talked about Pontius Pilate, who was the one who crucified him, or who was like, said that he was crucified. They would have okay. listened to the Jews. Like, Pontius Pilate would have been like, yeah, it's okay. Jews can crucify him, he's not. And he would have told the Romans.
0: I mean, still, you're bringing up a lot of data that now you have to give evidence of. Well, yeah, I mean, Josephus is the one that talks about that, but like to know that it was specifically a Roman soldier who then carried out the order. You haven't, you don't have the data. It says Pontius Pilate crucified him, but Pontius Pilate himself didn't do it. Somebody else had to. He gave permission. Yeah, he is. Is he over everybody? Yeah. He's the but dude. The Jews don't it. He's the man in that area. <laughs> right. He's, he's <laughs> right. It's but in more the end. To say <laughs> that a, that it's more
3: reasonable to assume that a Roman uh, prefect would command a Roman. Um, it's more reasonable to assume that a Roman pre- governor would command Roman uh, execution, crucifixion. Right. For a Jewish uh, leader to command
0: a Roman Right, crucifixion. and I think that's true. I would agree with that, but I think even a better approach is the fact that all of these other sources, not even looking at scripture, just plainly say, he died.
1: <laughs> Did we
0: not say that? No. <laughs> no, you didn't. I got late. No, you're fine. <laughs> So all of these other sources just say straight up, he died. And their earliest sources, the first source that we really have that says like he didn't actually die as it ends up being some Muslim sources. Are
3: they saying specifically he died from the crucifixion or something? Because
0: we know that everybody dies. Right. But it doesn't, in a lot of ways, is it as important to us that he died or that he died of crucifixion?
3: at that time or say that he rose
0: three days later or that he, people saw him afterwards, I guess. Right, but our other, our other fact is saying that they saw him after he died. Yeah, so it wouldn't
1: be relevant what, how he died necessarily.
0: Yeah, it's not quite as important how he died, in a sense. There is a lot of things that we'll, we can point to and we'll kind of get to a little bit of that as well, of the points you guys are bringing up that nobody really died, has lived through that. So the next idea is that the body was stolen. Good yeah. Even if your other how would
3: they know if he died? What? They say he died, how would they know?
0: And that's where, again, we're looking at, right, and that's where, again, we're looking at what's the most reasonable explanation of this data. So when I had a dialogue with this person online who was just like, I don't trust that source. I'm like, okay, well, what's your source that Caesar existed? Well, I don't trust that. Like, if I were to, I just played devil's advocate even with him, I was like, I don't believe any of the Caesars ever existed. And he's like, that's ridiculous. I'm like, well, how do you know that those sources are reliable? And he has to use the same data that we use, the same criteria we use to establish those sources as being reliable. So if whatever he uses to dismiss the data we have, I can use that to apply to any other person of history if you're going to be reasonable in that, if you're going to keep the score even across the board and not be biased, you have to make sure that you're applying the same sort of standard across the board. So the next idea, and kind of think about maybe both of these possibilities, is that he, someone stole the body. Maybe the disciples stole the body and then they went around going saying that he rose from the dead or someone else stole the body and then the disciples became convinced that Somehow or another, he rose from the dead. Go in your groups and discuss that possibility. All right. Taking a little less time with this one. Thoughts? Someone stole the body. What would you guys say?
2: Yeah, that's a lot. Why did so many people claim to see
0: it then? Mm hmm. That's definitely the main, I think that's the main spot to go with this for Why sure. Didn't
3: anybody write it down? Right. Abraham. Somebody tried to steal Abraham Lincoln's
0: body. Right. And we know that. We know written about
3: written it. Down. Right. Why would nobody have written it down so they tried to steal his body? Right. <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah. Did you have another? Yeah, it, 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 some of the sources said that they, his followers were persecuted for it. So, like, mm-hmm.
3: how far would they take their lives if they, if they stole the body? Right. And they knew that Jesus hadn't risen. Would they be willing to be tortured?
0: Right. So that gets into martyrdom. Like, what are you willing to die for? Are you willing to die for something that you know is a lie? Probably not. And then I think especially with that is that someone who isn't following, so Paul at the very least, most scholars are going to agree, like he wasn't on the team at first. And then all of a sudden he believes He's persecuting the church for a while. Why would all of a sudden a stolen body convince him when he's been persecuting them before? Which brings us to the next theory, which is that they hallucinated that Jesus appeared to them. So do your thing, discuss that one. All right, so I'm making these short because there's some other stuff I want to even talk about as well. So what about this one? They hallucinate it. What would you? What be your approach? How about somebody from the far group? Mainly, just you guys stop talking. <laughs> what about you guys? What would you guys say with this one? Anybody else? <laughs> what? Well, <laughs> what would you argue if somebody said they hallucinated that Jesus appeared to them? A whole mass of people, that doesn't seem very reasonable,
2: but they all hallucinated the same
0: thing. Mm-hmm. So scientific facts, look at it, and if we all took some psychosomatic drug right now, we're not, we're not going to imagine the same thing we're all going to see different things. So that doesn't line up with the data that you have these multiple people seeing the same thing.
3: I think we have to be careful with saying, well, that's not how hallucination works because, well, that's not how death works either. You don't come back from from the dead that way. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of using the same argument that the atheists are trying to use to say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Right. So Three mass hallucinations are
0: probably way less probable than one resurrection. Right. Yeah, and I think that's, again, a good, good way to look at it, for sure. Um, also, do we have anyone that's proclaiming that? Any sources that are saying, like, and the Christians had hallucinations that Jesus rose from the dead, and we have evidence that he didn't we had his body. We don't have anything like that. So when, whenever you're kind of bringing up these other theories somebody needs to somehow also produce not only here's a theory but here's some evidence to back it up and that's part of the whole non biased most reasonable explanation of the data is yes I could give an explanation of why UMBC beat Virginia and that's not actually what happened but I have to give you evidence now to show you that that's not what actually happened.
3: Do we have historical evidence of people during that time frame who did have hallucinations and how they worded it in that type of context? Because a lot I'd of have to look it up. Talk about Jesus or the like. Jesus followers believed, that. right? And then, like, if you could say, well, in all these other examples, when they're talking about hallucination, this is the wording they used, and then nowhere did they, you know, believing
0: Right. Um, I think, though, part of that fact would also be that none of these had, if there was set in stone reasons why they could reject um, the disciples, what they saw, it seems like they would bring that out. So we don't have any of the sources saying, the disciples believed he appeared to them, but we know that's not true because blank. Mm -hmm. None of the sources give an explanation for it. They just simply say they believed that it happened. And I don't know how to explain it, but they believe that it happened.
3: So I guess you would argue, you could argue that, well, okay, they believe it, so that would kind of throw out the hallucination theory, but they they would say, okay, these group of people believed it. Just because somebody believes it doesn't mean it's true. You'd have to argue from that
0: Right. But that goes also with, and what we'll talk about a little bit in a second, about martyrdom and the importance of them willing to be martyrs in that so last one I'm just gonna hit this last one and this is the replacement theory and this is basically the belief that someone else died on the cross or that Jesus was crucified and then someone else is the one that appeared to the followers afterwards so this is what the Muslims actually say so in some of the Muslim writing I forget if it's actually in the Quran I think it's in something else, will actually say that like, it appeared to them that Jesus died on the cross. He never actually died. Judas was the one who actually died, and it appeared as though it was Jesus. What? And Allah deceived the people to do that, which isn't against Muslim beliefs. Allah, if he wants to trick people, he's welcome to do that, which is Questions. not exactly how I would want my God to work, but hey,
1: <coughs>
0: whatever floats your boat. Um, so with that idea, again, you have the problems of Who are the people that are seeing this? Jesus, his own brother, disciples that had been with him for years, Mary, his mother. They're not exactly going to look and be like, I think that's him. Uh, I'm pretty sure. (laughs)
1: Like,
0: they're going to know. Even the people that are wanting him crucified, you're not going to be like, Yeah, we have to kill this guy. He's doing so much trouble. I think that's the dude. Let's kill him. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're going to be darn sure to make sure you got the right guy. And then also people believing that he appeared to them later, you're going to have to have some pretty convincing things in that as well. So those end up being the problems. And then the sources, the one source that we have that's, that's trying to promote that idea comes from the Muslims, which is written 600 years afterwards, am I gonna trust what they have to say or am I gonna trust 1 Corinthians 15, which written maybe months to two years after it? I'm gonna go with the one that's a little close to the data. Did you have a thought? That was a question. Cool. Um, so this is kind of the f- climax scene, honestly, um, for the from the case for Christ, and I think this kind of summarizes a lot of what we've you just put talked a spoiler about. Spoiler in your slideshow? I did put a spoiler. <laughs> we've pretty spoiler, much. Spoiler: Jesus rose from
3: the
0: dead. Yeah. We've pretty much covered all of this. Spoiler: yeah,
3: The Romans killed Jesus. Someone
1: rings me up and says he wants to speak with Mr. Gibbons. It's important.
2: I appreciate your time. All right. That's so it.
1: We're uh, just doing some research on the effect of stress on my hormone levels and minds, which is another project of ours. But I assure you, you shall have my undivided attention.
2: <laughs> okay, I'm, then I'm just gonna jump right in. Um, so my line of attack is this. The reason the eyewitnesses were able to see Jesus after Algatha is because he never died on the cross.
1: Because if he doesn't
2: die, there's no resurrection. That's right. So, so whether or not Jesus himself or uh, or someone else took him off of the cross early, or if he faked his own death, it doesn't matter. It completely
1: discounts every aspect of the resurrection. That's wrong theory. Yeah, if he passed out, he didn't die. There's are long line of skeptics in front of you with that. Including only a billion Muslims the world over who also don't believe that Jesus died on the cross because the Quran says so. so with all due respect to Islam. The Quran was written six centuries after Christ. I prefer my historical sources a bit closer to that. I understand, but, but, but you can see that it's possible. I don't know. Mr. Squirrel, I am a medical doctor and a scientist. I have seen a great many strange phenomena in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Now, the swim theory is rubbish. <laughs> rubbish? That's, uh, is that a, a medical opinion? <laughs> no, it is, actually. Um, swan theorists tend to skim over the fact that Jesus was prior to his crucifixion. Do you know what happens in a room for uh, Um yeah, The person is lashed with yeah, a whip? No, not lashed. Scourged and pummeled, essentially. You see, the, the guy whip is braided with metal balls and bone frames. The flesh on Jesus' back would have been shredded. The very muscles and sinews themselves laid open to explosion. The fogging itself would have left Jesus in critical condition for a massive blood loss, which is why he collapsed on the way to the cross the brothers made him carry the to Okay, and so is it possible that Jesus survives being spiked to the cross? Oh, yes, he could survive it, but it's child's play compared to what comes next in the crucifixion. So, agonizing death by nice asphyxiation. <sighs> The crucifixion of Jesus is one of the best attested events in the ancient world. There is no historical evidence of anyone, anywhere, ever surviving a full-blown crucifixion. Oh. And, if you will, the final nail in the coffin <laughs> is this. When the soldiers thrust their spear between Jesus' ribs, do you know what came out, blood and water? What you now know is a description of pericardial effusion as a result of death by asphyxiation. This is not a condition anyone could think. And so to answer your question, yes, it is my medical opinion that Jesus Christ died on that cross. But, but but I got I, I have a real problem with most of the
2: experts that I've talked to here. Which is? Uh, which is that most of them
1: are not impartial, and if I'm going to tell you yes, I would say that you are not either. You would be correct, sir. Though I have learned that most impartial travelers who undertake this journey rarely made so. However, I can refer you to one of the most impartial sources that I know. Would you trust the Journal of the American Medical Association? Of course, it is a stellar scientific
2: journal, and I will admit that. On the physical death of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Clearly the weight of the medical and historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with
1: modern
0: medical knowledge. Doc, I gotta tell ya, you're not telling me what I hope to hear today. So, two last things I just wanna finish on. I think it's important to understand how important it is that they were martyrs, that they were willing to die for that ends up being a hugely significant thing Um, it's is something important enough to die for so again if we look back on this past sweet 16 if I was there at that um, with UMBC beating Virginia and someone is telling me I don't believe that that happened I'm going to kill you if you don't deny that am I going to die for that no, it's probably not really worth it unless I'm a really die-hard Retrievers fan, right? Okay, literally die hard. See what I did there? Stop!
2: Horrible.
0: So, you wrote that down your nose. I, I totally did. Anywho, um, so you may believe that chocolate ice cream is the best ice cream in the world, but you're not going to be willing to die for that. That's not significant enough for you to die for. Jesus being God, on the other hand, Might be worth that, right? When we're looking at martyrs as well, and another important thing to look at is, were they actually eyewitnesses to it? Because sometimes people will bring up the objection of saying like, well, we know people die all the time for their religious convictions. Yes, they do. But they weren't eyewitnesses to the events that they're talking about. That changes the whole game. Because if I'm doing it based on what Buck said about something, that's more of my faith in him than it is an actual proof of anything that I have.
1: <clears throat>
0: Probably not well placed. <laughs> I may believe that Jesus is God, but I could just be wrong because I'm not an eyewitness to the event. So when it comes to me doing this, when we look at Mormons a lot of times, they're like, I can testify that the Book of Mormon's true. Well, how do you know the Book of Mormon is true? You weren't there when anything in that was written, nor were you there when the plates were supposedly given to Joseph Smith. Your testimony means nothing when it comes to this. So their willingness to die, if anybody was really persecuting them, really doesn't have any significance. But the disciples and the other people from that time period, James and Paul, Peter, John, those people being willing to die for it, and we have good evidence for a lot of them being willing to die for it, ends up being a lot more significant. So this separates the early disciples from current-day martyrs. This separates the early disciples from the followers of Islam or Mormonism. So that's the thing that we have to kind of keep in mind when it comes to martyrdom. The last thing I wanted to talk about is when it comes to all of this, That this gives us just four options about who Jesus really is. Because he makes the claim, like we started with in the very beginning of this, he makes the claim that he's God. And he says that the way that you'll know that I am God is because I rose from the dead. And with that being true, we're left with these four options. Either he lied about it, he was insane, and he thought he was God, and he wasn't, so he was a lunatic, he was a myth and really never existed in the first place, or he claimed to be God, and he actually was Lord. Those are the four options that you have. So... C.S. Lewis makes this point, and I think this is something most people, when we're talking with them about Christ, they kind of have this view of, yeah, I think he was a good guy. He's kind of like Gandhi or Buddha. Has some good, good moral teachings, but beyond that, I don't really think there's anything to say about it. C.S. Lewis puts this extremely well. He's saying, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things he said would not be a great moral teacher, who would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. That's what we have to remember when we're having these conversations with people, because people really don't want to say, I think he was insane, or I think he was a horrible person. Because in the end, let's be honest, if he knew that he wasn't God and claimed to be God, kind of knowing already that people were going to go to their deaths believing that because John the Baptist had already died for that belief and knowing his other disciples would probably end up with the same fate, is that a good moral teacher anymore? No, he's not. So those are the options we're left with. So we have to put somebody into this little bit of uncomfort to say you got to make your choice. And most people don't want to say he was a bad person. Everyone wants to champion Christ. People have a problem with Christianity but they usually don't have a problem with Christ. So that's what I had for you guys tonight. Any questions? Wrap it up. Yeah. Okay. Just to throw that out there, because I remember we've talked about this a few times and I didn't get into like I watched the Doodle and I was like, wow. Right. Wow. Yeah, there's a there's a really <laughs> cool YouTube video or YouTube channel just called C S Lewis Doodle and it's a bunch of his stuff put into it's kind of almost like you think of um, Bible Project, it's kind of similar to that. Um, but C S Lewis's works. So it's a really good resource. All right, thanks everybody for coming. Um, I don't know if any of you guys are interested in doing the booth with us. We would love you guys to join us when we do that. Um, we got to set in stone exactly when we're going to do that. Um, so I'm going to get a hold of our chapter president and have him re- reserve the time to do it. Um, but I think, honestly, the rest of this semester we're probably going to try to do it somewhat frequently, but at least sometime next week to try to do it really close to Easter. Just so. email me. Great. Yeah, you want to pray us out? That'd be great.
3: Dear Lord, uh, we just want to thank you, God, for being more than we could ever ask for. Um, And we want to thank you for this time and that we can explore and learn more about you in the open environment, Lord. And just want to thank you that you really are infallible. Um, You sent your only son and define the rest of history. With his life and his actions and the fact that we can be followers and we are given the mission to reach out to other people and show them how important it is for them to believe in you it is incredible Lord and it's a lot to ask but we feel that you're going to assist us along the way so just thank you for walking beside us and just keep us safe uh, by walking beside us for the next week and bring us all back here so we can further our pursuit towards mm-hmm. God. you God know, pray, amen Let me clean up
2: the poster.